This week, we're going to start a two-week mini-series on the spiritual disciplines. Two-week mini-series on spiritual disciplines. We want to focus on two spiritual disciplines in particular to help us kick off the new year uh, on the right foot. These two disciplines are prayer and reading the Bible. We want to start with these two because these two spiritual disciplines lay the foundation for basically every other pursuit in the Christian life, seeking the Lord in His Word and seeking the Lord in prayer. And so some of you might be asking, what are spiritual disciplines? It might be a new term for you, or you might not really understand what they are. So I want to offer a simple definition for spiritual disciplines, that is habits of devotion an experiential Christianity that the people of God have practiced since biblical times. Spiritual disciplines are habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that the people of God have practiced since biblical times. They are both personal and interpersonal. They are personal and that there are some of them that we practice on our own. We read our Bibles on our own. We pray on our own. We meditate on God's Word. We memorize God's Word. Those are things that we do as individuals. Yes, we do those with other people, but they are also a deeply personal discipline. But they are also interpersonal because some of them require other people to be involved, like evangelism, evangelism, or serving. Other people are inherently involved in those disciplines. And some people will argue that there's no such thing as spiritual disciplines because there's no verse in the Bible that says these are the spiritual disciplines and these are the ones that you need to practice and give you a nice list that there's no such thing as spiritual disciplines. But respectfully, I would disagree with that assessment. I think that the call to spiritual discipline is all over Scripture. For example, 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 7, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness, for the training of the body has limited benefit. But godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13, says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Jesus told the people that would want to follow him, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. All of these passages and so many more throughout Scripture show us that there is an expectation of disciplined effort in the life of the Christian. Following Christ does require work. So we know what they are. We know they're expected. So why do we practice them? What is the benefit of them? Well, we practice the spiritual disciplines because we have already been sanctified in Christ. That's one reason we practice them, because we're already sanctified in Christ. Our practice of spiritual discipline flows from the newness of life that we have because of Christ's death and resurrection. The spiritual disciplines do not earn us new life. They do not merit our salvation. Rather, they are the evidence of our salvation. They are the evidence of our hope being placed in Christ. They're the evidence that we are already Christians. The ethical demands of Scripture will always flow from our being in Christ. Obedience to Christ flows out of being in Christ. 
Being in Christ means that the Holy Spirit, who grants new life, dwells in you. Holy Spirit dwells in you. And the Spirit of God gives us strength so that we are able to live in such a way that is pleasing to God. Romans 8, 3 through 8 is a description of life in the Spirit. Paul affirms that all who are in Christ now walk according to the Spirit and think about spiritual things. So practicing the spiritual disciplines is a part of what it means to walk in the Spirit of God. Next, we practice the spiritual disciplines because we need to grow in godliness. When you become a Christian, you are not automatically the most mature Christian that you will ever be. There's a lot of room to grow. We live in an already, not yet reality. We are already sanctified. We are already saved. We are not yet completely sanctified. And we won't be until Christ returns and calls us home. This is why we experience tension and struggle in our pursuit of holiness. As we seek to know and grow in the Lord, we fight against our own flesh. We fight against the sin in our own minds. So we need to grow. We need constant encouragement to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The disciplines are a means to godliness. We just saw that Paul encourages Timothy to discipline himself in the way of godliness. This tells us that our goal in the Christian life should be godliness. The pursuit of this goal does require effort. It requires exertion. Cannot be passive if you want to grow in sanctification. Finally, we practice spiritual disciplines because of our hope of glory in Christ is certain. Because our hope in Christ is certain, we can practice these spiritual disciplines with confidence. In 1 John 3, we're told that when Christ returns and we see him, we will be like him. We're also promised elsewhere new and perfect, glorious resurrection bodies. That the struggle that we go through will one day be worth it. And the hope of glory in Christ ought to motivate us to pursue godliness and to practice spiritual discipline. Our hope is certain, so we should persevere in our pursuit of holiness, knowing these efforts are not in vain. So this morning, we want to zero in on the spiritual discipline of prayer. The spiritual discipline of prayer. And I want to say from the onset that I understand that a lot of times a message about prayer can do nothing but leave you feeling bad about your prayer life, like you're not doing enough, like you're not doing the right thing. Uh, so buckle up, I guess, and get ready to feel bad. Uh, I'm just kidding. That's not actually what we're doing. My goal is to anchor our theology of prayer and what the Bible actually says about prayer and to walk away with a few practical encouragements that will help us develop a discipline of prayer in our lives. So prayer is what we're going to focus in on. And before we get too far in on the ins and outs of how to pray and what our prayer should consist of, it would probably be helpful to have a definition of prayer, to have a definition Uh, Systematic theology is the work of asking, what does the Bible say about X? And then looking at all of the available data and providing some sort of normative statement. So you ask the question, what does the Bible say about prayer? One way you could answer that is to start in Genesis 1 and go all the way to the end of Revelation and look at every reference to prayer and write it all down and then say, well, this is everything that the Bible says about prayer. Or what you can do is you can take all of the available data and make one simple statement that explains the summary of what the Bible says. And that's the work of systematic theology. 
And the Westminster Shorter Catechism writers did that, and they asked the question, what is prayer? And they provide a very helpful answer. So to the question, what is prayer? They answer, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Or to summarize it in less 1500 style language, prayer is an act and an attitude of dependency upon God. It's an act and an attitude of dependency upon God. So now that we know what prayer is, we need to look at what the Bible has to say about it. And one thing that the Bible does make clear is that prayer is expected. If anyone is to follow Jesus, Jesus expects them to pray. This is clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has this expectation. Matthew 6, starting in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So just in these three short verses, in these three short verses, Jesus says, when you pray, three times. When you pray. Not if you pray, should you feel like praying, here's some helpful advice, but Jesus has the expectation that those who would call themselves his disciples would pray. We also see this in Colossians 4 too. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So this command in Colossians 4 2 comes right after Paul has urged us to live in a manner consistent with who we are in Christ. Because we have been raised to new life with Christ, we are to seek the things that are above while fighting against what is earthly and sinful. Prayer like this expresses our complete and utter dependence on God for help and strength. There's also this expectation in 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Here, Paul encourages us to be joyful and to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances. The reason we should do this is because it is God's will for us. You ask the question, what is God's will for me? Well, at least part of it from this verse is that you would rejoice and pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. Prayer is not optional for Christians. It's God's will that we should meet him in prayer continually and without ceasing. And to clarify, what's happening here is God is not asking us to drop everything and only pray. Neglect your kids, neglect your spouse, neglect your job, neglect everything you need to do, and only pray. That is not the ask. The idea is that prayer, if it is not on the forefront of your mind, it is right next to it, ready to jump in at any moment ready to jump in when you face a trial or you get frustrated or when you're celebrating, when some unexpected blessing comes your way. In all circumstances, we should be ready to pray. And prayer is not only an expectation, biblically, it is an invitation. Prayer is not just an expectation, but it is an invitation. 
Have you ever considered how crazy it is, how wild it is to approach the all-powerful, sovereign creator of the universe with your requests, with your desires, with your worries, the things that are stressing you? It's a crazy thing. It's a crazy thing. We're invited to do that. That is what the Christian is invited to do. Through our faith in Jesus Christ, we have this access to God. Because Christ has reconciled us by his blood, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Our sins, which once created an unscalable chasm between us and God, have been forgiven through the cross. Psalm 116 is one of my favorite psalms. It says this, I love the Lord because he has heard my appeal for mercy. Because he has turned his ear to me, I will call out to him as long as I live. I love that psalm because it reminds me of how good God has been to me in Christ. The word heard there is not just that God hears noise. He doesn't just hear our noise. Kind of like if you're a parent and you give your kids an instruction and you ask, did you hear me? They could say yes because they heard words coming out of your mouth, but were they listening? In my experience, most of the time, no. But God doesn't just hear noise, he is listening. It means he hears with attention and interest, and he regards it. It's also crazy that this phrase, because he has turned his ear to me, is there. I mean, that's kind of crazy, right? If you think about it, God, creator of the universe, sovereign over all things, has turned his ear to you. If you're a Christian, you have the ear of God. He will listen. That's a good reason to pray. So prayer is expected, and prayer is learned. In a sense, prayer should be as natural for the Christian as breathing. When we think about everything that the Lord has done for us, all that he has provided, our salvation, the fact that all of our sins are taken away at the cross, prayer should be a natural reflex to us. Yet, we all know we have to grow in our ability to pray. We have to grow in our desire to pray. And through learning and practice, we can learn to be more biblical in our prayers. Even Jesus' disciples asked him at one point, Lord, teach us to pray. So how is prayer learned? I want to offer three different ways that you can learn to pray. There are a lot more that, you can, that we could go over, but I want to focus in on three. Now, first one, I just want you to brace yourselves. It's going to blow your minds. Uh, Prayer is learned by praying. Prayer is learned by praying. Like any discipline, whether it's a foreign language or a musical instrument, you can read all the books you want about it. You can listen to all the lectures you want about it. You can study all of the texts and understand all the theory behind it. But until you actually do it, you haven't learned it. You won't really learn it. Prayer is the same way. The Puritans used to say we should pray until we pray. We should pray until we pray. What they meant by this is that we ought to pray long enough and honestly enough in a single session to get past this feeling of formalism or to feel like it's, like it's centered in reality, that it's not a disconnected thing. And this is true for me, and I bet it's true for many of you, that often our prayers can begin in a cold, mechanical way. We have certain phrases that we like to say. We, we have all of our prayers that we say before meals because we feel like we ought to pray before a meal, and so we just kind of mechanically say the words that we know we're supposed to. But if you stick with it, pray until you pray, 
our hearts soften up and are warmed. Our minds become more active and engaged. Our praise and thanksgiving become more and more heartfelt. And our requests before the Lord become more urgent. D.A. Carson says this, To enter the spirit of prayer, we must stick to it for a while. If we pray until we pray, eventually we come to delight in God's presence, to rest in his love, to cherish his will. So prayer is learned by praying. And prayer is also learned by praying with others. Prayer is learned by praying in others. We can learn to pray from the godly examples of other people. And we should study the content of other people's prayers. I'm so thankful for the volumes and volumes of sermons that have been recorded over the years and put in books. And it includes the prayers of some of these great preachers that we can look at them, see what is in their hearts as they're, they're praying. But as we study the content of other people's prayer, we shouldn't just take it like we want to parrot it. We shouldn't just be little parrots that repeat what they say and expect it to work for us if our heart's not into it. We need to make prayer our own. Some practical ways to learn from others is develop a prayer partner relationship. Is there somebody that you pray with regularly? Are you a parent? Pray with your kids. Are you married? Pray with your spouse. Do you have a friend? I hope you all have friends. Pray with your friends. You can learn how to pray through these types of relationships and also choose good models of prayer and choose good models of prayer. And sometimes it's difficult to identify, but we should look for people who pray with great seriousness and passion and urgency, but don't be confused by emotional prayer. Just because a prayer is emotional doesn't make it a good prayer. Just like an emotional sermon doesn't mean it's a good sermon. Is it full of arguments and biblical content and goals that are biblical? Do they really seem like they're seeking after the, the heart of God? It's hard to judge those things, but we can learn a lot from them. Look for people who are especially faithful in interceding for others. People who put others before themselves as they are praying. A prayer characterized by a God-honoring mix of contrition and humility and boldness are great models to seek after. Where can you find these types of models? Uh, the Bible is a really great place to start. Uh, there are over 650 prayers recorded in the Bible. And so there's only 150 psalms. That means that there are 500 other prayers throughout the rest of the Bible to look for. Some of them are desperate pleas in like dark, dark times seeking God's help. Others are glad shouts of celebration for the goodness of God, the goodness of what he has done for them. You can listen to prayers at church or during community groups. You can read books like The Valley of Vision or Prayer by Tim Keller. There's a variety of books out there that are really helpful in prayer. Other Christians are also a good place to look. Praying with other Christians is a great way to build the discipline of prayer. So I would ask you, is there anybody that you're praying with regularly right now? If so, great, keep at it. Dig deeper. If not, find somebody. Pray with them. Pray with them. Prayers learned by praying, by praying with others, and by meditating on Scripture. Prayers learned by meditating on the Scriptures. Meditation in a biblical sense is not just a sitting still until your mind is empty, but it is a practice of saying God's words, praying God's words back to Him. Meditation in the biblical sense is the practice of praying God's words back to him. And by praying this way, we are connecting two spiritual disciplines. 
By meditating on Scripture, we connect reading the Bible with prayer. The Puritans emphasized the role of meditation a lot. One Puritan, Thomas Manton, said this, Meditation is a middle sort of duty between the Word and prayer. The Word feeds meditation, and meditation feeds prayer. These duties must always go hand in hand. Meditation must allow, must follow hearing and precede prayer. To hear and not to meditate is unfruitful. It is rashness to pray and not to meditate. What we take in by the word, we digest by meditation and let out by prayer. These three duties must be ordered that one may not jostle out the other. So one helpful thing you can do to improve your prayer life is read the Bible before you pray. Read the scriptures before you pray. And as you are reading, what are some things that you notice that can help shape your prayers? Are there things to thank God for? Things to worship and praise God for? Is there anything that brought about a conviction of sin? Let that shape confession and repentance. Is there any promise that jumped out to you? Claim that in your prayer life. So look for God's promises and allow them to shape your prayer life. And so prayer is learned in a variety of ways. And so now that we know that the Bible expects us to pray, we know we're invited to pray and we know how to learn how to pray, what should the content of our prayer be? In order to, to examine that, I want to take just a few moments and look at what the content of prayer should be based on the great Lord's Prayer. It says this, starting in Matthew 6, Therefore, you should pray like this, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive those as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So let's break that down a little bit, phrase by phrase. We address our prayers first to God as our heavenly Father. As our heavenly Father. Not that we have to say these exact words, but the idea is that it reminds us of our privileged position before God. That God is our Father. Because of the work of Christ, we have been adopted as God's children. His spirit dwells in us. And so because we are children of God, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. We can approach the throne of grace with boldness. And he's also our father in heaven. And this access to God should not be taken lightly. The God we're approaching is in heaven, a place that apart from Christ, we have no business approaching. This tells us that God is transcendent, that he is high, that he is lifted up. He is great and glorious. He is sovereign and all-powerful. He is our redeemer. And this is the God to whom we are coming to in prayer. And our prayers ought to be characterized by an appropriate humility and awe and reverence. Next, your name be honored as holy. Many translations will say, hallowed be your name. Or if you want to be super KJV about it thy name. Depends on where you're at. The point is, God's name is a reflection of who he is. God's name is a reflection of who he is, his character, his perfections. To pray that God's name be hallowed or honored as holy is to ask that God might be glorified and exalted in our prayers, in our lives, and in our world. Your kingdom come. This refers to God's saving rule. The kingdom of God has come. In Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection. So your kingdom come is an essentially gospel-centered petition. 
that is gospel-centered. It's asking God to extend his kingdom through the advance of his gospel. And to pray this way is to have our eyes fixed on eternal matters, the things above, not the things of this world. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is an extension of your kingdom come. If God's kingdom is coming, then his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. This helps us to reorient our will around God's will. Not seeking to get God to conform to our desires, but rather submitting our desires to him. And implicitly, when we pray this way, we are committing ourselves to learning all that we can about God's will so that we can submit to it and obey it. Give us this day our daily bread should remind us of our constant daily, moment-to-moment dependence on God. And the significance of this phrase can be lost on, on us as modern readers. Typically, there's an abundance of food available around us. But in Jesus' days, workers were often paid a daily wage. They got paid for each day of work. And the wage was so low that it was next to impossible to save any of it. So to not work for even a single day meant risking not eating, not feeding yourself, not feeding your family, not feeding those who depend on you. So when we say, give us this day our daily bread, what we are doing is we are acknowledging our complete trust in our Heavenly Father to provide what we need. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors does not refer to financial debts, but instead refers to our own sin debt that we have earned because of our rebellion to God. This is a part of prayer when we confess our sins to God and seek forgiveness from Him. And it accomplishes a few things. When we pray this way, we are acknowledging that God is holy, that He is holy, that He is right, He is just, and that we have sinned against Him. But it also helps us to recognize that God is gracious and He is merciful. Because of the love God has shown us in Christ, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And sometimes there may not be sin at the forefront of your mind. You might not be immediately convicted by something. But there's a helpful prayer in Psalm 139 that David shares that I think we would all be a little bit better for if we prayed this honestly. Psalm 139, starting in verse 23. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. I don't know about that. I mean, if I'm honest, I don't want to pray that way. Because God will act on it. He will reveal any offensive way in me. And I don't want to know about that. But it's a good, honest prayer. It will help us grow into maturity. Finally, do not bring us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. This language can be a little bit confusing at first glance. It almost reads like God is leading us into temptation, and so we have to convince him to lead us out of temptation. But that's not what it's saying. Because according to James 1, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what does it mean? When you pray this way, you're essentially saying, bring us not into temptation, but away from and into righteousness. Lead us into situations where far from being tempted, we will be protected and kept righteous. When we pray this way, we're allowing the Lord to lead. We are submitting 
our will to his and being led in a way that will protect us and keep us far from evil. And it reminds us that we need to depend on the Lord for moral and spiritual victory in the same way that we depend on God for our physical needs. Not to depend on God is already to fail because it reveals our sinful pride and our self-sufficiency. An important mark of Christian maturity is a sober view of our own moral weakness. The longer I have followed Christ, the more I am aware of how little I deserve the grace of God. The deeper he works in my heart, the deeper I see how the darkness ran. And it reminds me that the Lord alone is my strength and my refuge. The Lord alone can only be your strength and your refuge. Pray that you might be strong in the Lord and that he will provide you the spiritual armor that only he is able to provide. So that's the content of prayer. It's a helpful prayer. It's a model prayer for us. The expectation that Jesus said is not that we blindly pray these exact words, but we're to use it as a framework for our own prayers. Jesus said, pray like this, and he gave us a framework. Paul's prayers are also an excellent example of God-centered, Christ-honoring prayer. His prayers reflected the same priorities laid out in the Lord's prayer. A helpful summary of the content that comes out of the Lord's prayer is in the acronym ACTS. I'm not very smart, so I didn't think of this. I don't know who did, but it's helpful. Acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's the content of prayer. That's the content that Jesus was showing us in the Lord's prayers, the content of Paul's prayers. Just to end our time, I want to share two reasons why you should be encouraged to pray and a few practical helps for developing a helpful prayer life. First reason to be encouraged in prayer is that God answers prayer. God does answer prayer. That's an amazing thing. In Psalm 65 too, David refers to God as, Oh, you who hear prayer. And here again, it's not just that he hears the words, but that he hears and he acts. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is telling us our prayers will be answered. But to be clear, that doesn't mean that our prayers will be answered exactly the way we're hoping them to. In his book on prayer, Tim Keller tells us that God will answer prayers exactly the same way that you would answer your prayers if you knew everything that he knows. So God will answer them according to his perfect, good, and right will. So God answers prayer. Second reason to be encouraged is God is absolutely sovereign. Because God is sovereign, we can pray with confidence. Prayer does not conflict with God's sovereignty. From the beginning to the end of Scripture, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are laid out side by side without apology and without concern. There's no conflict between God's sovereignty and our responsibility to pray. God, in his sovereignty, has appointed us, the church, to be his instruments for the carrying out of his will. One of the means he has given us to be his instruments is prayer. God is sovereign and has given us prayer to help carry out his will. There's some practical ways, then, to develop a helpful and healthy prayer life. First is plan to pray. Just have a plan to pray. 
That's the big thing. You need to cultivate a habit of prayer. If you want to pray, you have to pray. Just like a farmer, if they want, if they want a crop, they have to cultivate the land. They have to put in the work. They have to plant the seed. There is work involved in that. Part of this means setting aside time to pray. Set aside time, mark it as holy, and pray at that time. Find ways to redeem the time that you do have. Do you have a drive that you go on every day or a walk? Is there time that you have alone that you can redeem? Just find these different moments. Find these different moments so you can redeem the time and pray. Second way is find ways to maintain concentration while you pray. A distracted prayer life is not a very healthy prayer life. One way to do that is to vocalize your prayers. Pray out loud. It's hard to get distracted when you're praying out loud. Although after the last service, one guy did come up to me and said that's when he gets the most distracted. But let's look at that as the exception that proves the rule. Prayer is helpful. It's helpful to vocalize your prayers. Pray through Scripture. Use things like the Lord's Prayer, Paul's prayers, different passages of Scripture to guide your prayer time. Or get a journal. Write down your prayers. Write down your prayers. That's a very helpful way to do it. If you write down your prayers, uh, starting tomorrow through the next year, you look at that journal one year from today, what you have then is a record of your prayers and you have a record of God's faithfulness to you. You can look back and see all the different ways that God has acted and it will spur you on into deeper, lasting prayer. Finally, develop a system for prayer. Have a, have a plan for how you're going to pray for the people in your community group, in your family, in your neighborhood. Do you have a plan for that? Make a list. Make a list. Lists are very helpful. They help us get chores done around the house. They can help us have a healthy prayer life. D.A. Carson says, all of us would be wiser if we would resolve never to put people down except on our prayer lists. Finally, organize prayer categories around days of the week. Organize prayer categories around days of the week. Alliterate if you need to. Do you care about what God is doing overseas through missionaries? Do you care what he's doing globally? Well, have a category of Mission Monday. That's what you're praying for. It's for missions. You want to pray for your family? You want a dedicated time to pray for your family? Family Fridays. There's all sorts of ways that you can categorize prayer in different way, for different days of the week. So just to close, because it is New Year's Eve, I want to share one resolution with you. Because I know you're all making resolutions. I want to share one with you as well. And my hope is that it can be a model for you to think about not just your prayer life, but your whole life going into this new year and for many years to come. And again, I'm not that smart, so I didn't come up with this. It was actually written by Jonathan Edwards a long time ago when he was 19 years old. He put out a list of 70 resolutions that helped, and they helped shape the rest of his life. And I don't know any 19-year-olds that think the way that Jonathan Edwards was thinking. I just turned 36, and I don't think the way that Jonathan Edwards thinks. So this is mind-blowing to me that this came from a 19-year-old. But I hope that it is an encouragement to you as you think about your prayer life, as you think about your life before the Lord. Resolved very much to exercise myself in this all my life with the greatest openness I am capable of to declare my ways to God and lay open my soul to him. All my sins, temptations, difficulties, sorrows, fears, hopes, desires, and everything and every circumstance. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, thank you that we can.